Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 1030 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption. Uh, in 2013, it was the first year I was pastoring at Grace Chapel in Watertown, Massachusetts. And uh, when you're a pastor, like, you, you kind of worry about what Someone's going to come up to you at some point in the service and say, hey, we need to talk. And it's like, good or bad, who knows? Like, it's just that, like, bracing, you know, okay, what's going to happen? And she goes, hey, we need to talk. Um, I didn't know her very well. She'd been coming for a few weeks, and I told her, yeah, we set up a time to meet. And the next day, she came to my office, and uh, she started to unload with tears her story of a controlling and abusive husband who beat her, who tracked where she went. He was jealous. He followed her. He threatened to kill her her or himself if she ever left him. Um, I had met the husband, and uh, when you meet narcissists, you know pretty quickly when you meet them. Like, it's pretty pretty clear once you kind of know the signs. Um, I, I told her that I would try to help her. She was creating a plan to leave him. She was deathly afraid of him. And this seems like a problem that it's clear what the issue is, it's clear what the threat is, it's clear what the answer is, but to get there is very, very difficult. Domestic violence between intimate partners is some of the most insidious evil in our world. If you're married and you have children with someone, there is no way to remove them from your life. You are stuck with their presence as long as they can find you. Um, I was in over my head as a 30-year-old who had no background in domestic violence. So um, I called, we had a ministry at our church uh, called Hagar Sisters that worked with women who were coming out of domestic violence. I called them to get a little bit of advice. I also called my friend Cassidy who had worked in women's shelters as an advocate and as a social worker. And they both told me, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to solve the problem of of this woman and, and the threat to her. And they both told me not to contact the police. And in some ways it made sense, but in some ways it baffled me. Because we've entrusted this work of pursuing justice. Today we're talking about justice. As a society, we've entrusted the work of justice to our police and our state prosecutors. In, In some ways we have delegated it completely away from ourselves onto a specialized group of people who are the only ones who are responsible to create justice in our world. But in the case of domestic violence, the police were not where they could turn for help. In the case of domestic violence, I gotta be honest, there aren't good tools to adjudicate justice between intimate partners. It's incredibly difficult. No contact and restraining orders are very limited in their ability to protect people. All it can do is say, hey, there's a legal order that you have to stay 300 feet from me, but it's very difficult to actually stop them from getting closer. And before the ubiquity of camera phones and security cameras, it was difficult to get evidence, and much of it is threats and coercion that are difficult to demonstrate in court. And many parts have, many states have two-part party consent for wiretaps, so even if you can create evidence demonstrating what they have done to you, a lot of times that's not admissible in court. We have these protections in our justice system that are, that are made to protect us from bad justice. We have due process that says that you are considered innocent until proven guilty, which is very difficult in domestic violence cases because one party is still in this threatening position in this relationship. We have the presumption of innocence, 
It's difficult because there's lack of witnesses, the he said, she said part of it. There's good reasons for those things. I really like the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. They're very valuable to a just society. But it's catastrophic for the one in four women and the one in ten men in our country who are, who are in domestic violence. But there's another reason that's more insidious and really touches on the question of justice in our society. Now, in, in the case of my friend who had worked with domestic violence victims, what she told me is there's, there's a question mark about when the police show up, some amount, it's, it's roughly equal to the number of people who are in domestic violence in homes. So somewhere between 25 and 40%. Um, but some police officers have issues in their families with domestic violence. And sometimes when they would show up in these situations, you didn't know if there was an unscrupulous officer who might counsel this man on how to avoid prosecution. Now, of course, that's not, the vast majority of police officers would not do that. But in the case of domestic violence, every once in a while, there would be someone who'd show up and they would side with the one who was being, the one who was the abuser. Every police officer that I know personally, including the ones I know in this room, <laughs> would find that perspective abhorrent. But what do you do if you can't get justice from the system that we've delegated justice to? What if we can't trust authorities to care? What if laws are built to protect the accused rather than the victims of ongoing violence? Questions of justice are notoriously difficult because they require two things that humans are very bad at. Wisdom and thoughtful deliberation. It's not our strong suit. I don't know if you've been watching our world, but those are not two things we're very good at. Have you ever given much thought to what is justice? I know a few of you work in that realm, but justice is an elusive concept, but it's vital to what it means to follow the way of Jesus and to understand what the Bible has to say about who we are and what, what we're supposed to pursue. We've been going through this sermon series we're calling Liturgy, which is about the work of the people, the values that we have as kingdom people here at Redemption Hill and within our network of churches we call the Syndicate. Last week we talked about simplicity and the radical work of simplifying our lives so we have margin and space to do the things God's called us to. This week we're talking about biblical justice. Now, it's not just social justice. It's not just racial justice. It's not just criminal justice. And it's not economic, not just economic justice, but justice, biblical justice, is this overarching work that we need to, we need to think pretty deeply about it. In this case, when we ask what is the question of justice when a woman is being tortured by their intimate partner, it's being free from the threat of violence to themselves or their children, free to live their lives with quiet enjoyment. Justice is them being set right, being made whole, being, being cared for from a situation that is unjust, which is a violent domestic partner. When we look at biblical justice, we need to look back at the ancient and the Roman worlds to understand what was meant then and how those things pull forward to what that means now. And we're going to do that in a minute. Um, it, it seems obvious, but when you don't get justice, you become someone who aches for it. Almost all the people I know who work in the justice system are there because they have seen deep injustice. And they have this sense inside of themselves that they must pursue it. They must give their life to this higher devotion of seeking justice in an unjust world. And all of us are probably constantly seeing injustice around us. If you're watching the news, if you're on social media, if you actually read what politicians say, there's constant works of injustice all around us. And we feel a sense, like an unease most of the time because we're anxious to see justice come in our world. We have, we have an ache for justice, and when, it's con when we're confronted with a deep injustice that's clear in front of us, we feel some, a, a need to do something. But in some ways, we've become so used to a world that is full of injustice that when it's pointed out, we shrug our shoulders and say, 
Well, what can you do? When we look at corruption in our world, we throw up our hands and say, well, I don't even know how to deal with that. I don't know who's in charge of that, but it's not me, and so I just, you know, politicians are going to do what politicians are going to do. But here's the thing. It's, it is really offensive to our sensibilities, but we've been hardened by the injustice of this world to think that it's normal. When, when you look, there's around our country, there's story after story, and it's probably not as prevalent as we imagine, but there are at times different kinds of justice for black, brown, and white suspects, depending on where they're at and what the majority culture is in their neighborhood. We see CEOs steal billions of dollars and serve no prison time. The Sackler family pretty much single-handedly created the opioid e epidemic in our country, and none of them will see time in jail, and most of them will keep their entire personal fortune that was built on the drug, drug epidemics that we're all paying for in our communities. We, we saw during COVID unjust things like church leaders that were prosecuted for gathering during COVID. Whether right or not, it's unjust to tell people you cannot gather together. We see oftentimes active shooters who are taken alive when black men on the streets can be killed just for being there. There's injustice all around us. Justice is almost always found for those who are in power. Let me tell you this. The powerful, they find ways to get justice because they have access to those who are in charge. They have money to pursue it. And they normally have enough leisure time that they can focus their energy on pursuing justice. But justice and biblical justice is meant for those who are weak because they're the ones who don't have access to it. So we need to think hard about what is justice and what is that little voice inside of us telling us that we can hope for something more? How do we pursue it in the world that's built for the powerful to thrive and the weak to pay the price? In some ways, we can't even imagine a just world. And so we ask, how can we get, instead of pursuing justice, we put our heads down and try to get a little piece of the action, a little bit of justice for us, and then hope Jesus comes back, right? Like that's so often, it's like, the world is so unjust, I'm just gonna do my life and not worry about anything outside of me. I got bad news for us if that's, if that's how we're gonna pursue justice. All right, so what is justice? Let's look at Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. This is one of the first times that this word justice shows up in the Bible. Genesis 18, verse 19. This is in the covenant of Abraham, this is God giving him instructions on what it means to be his family that he's set aside for his purpose. Genesis 18, 19 says, I have singled him out, Abraham, so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Now, right and just is one word there. It's sadiq or sadikah. And then he says, then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. So God set aside Abraham in this covenant not just to be his people that would preserve the story of God and make a way for Jesus to come back and to, and to give us forgiveness of sins. Now that's kind of like the, the narrative that we hear as, as a kid in Sunday school. But there's something much deeper going on. The family of Abraham was meant to be a beacon of justice in a world of injustice. And this word sadiq does not mean justice in a criminal way where people are punished for what they do. It's not meant to be um, justice um, that is merely restoration. It's meant to be, sadiq means the world is set right. Okay, so imagine the world is unright. That's what we live with. Justice doesn't even make sense to us because it is the world set right, the way that it was meant to be. And throughout all of history, we're going to see injustice, 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 injustice. And then the kingdom of God's going to break in in Abraham's family, and then more fully in Jesus' death, resurrection, and the coming of the new covenant, and then fully at the end of time when Jesus brings his kingdom to fruition. Now that's the sort of justice that we're hoping for, this sort of shalom where all things are set right. And one of the ways that uh, the, the prophets talk about it is that all the hilly places will be made flat. Now, like that's, 
That's good news if you've ever lived in really hilly places. Why do we live in the valley? Because it's flat. It doesn't take as much work for us to build houses on it. And hilly places are not useful places, and so it's kind of a metaphor for God's going to make everything useful again. But when we're talking about justice, what it's talking about is there's inequality in the outworkings of justice in our world. Wealth, poor, powerful, unpowerful. So God's going to take the hills and he's going to make them flat and set all things on an equal plane. So this word Sadiq or Sadiqah shows up 157 times in the Old Testament, which is a lot. And then Dikaiosune, which is the Greek word for Sadiq, that's the way it's translated, Dikaiosune is used over 300 times in the New Testament. 300 times, 150 in the Old Testament, 300 times in the New Testament. This is a major, major theme that we barely ever talk about when we talk about the way of Jesus, which is justice. In the New Testament, a lot of times, it's translated as righteousness. But when you hear the word righteousness, what do you think of? You can say it out loud. Self-righteous. Self-righteous, okay. Rules. Like, I'm, I'm good at following rules, therefore I'm righteous. What, what, else, what else do you think about when you hear the term righteous? Right relationship. Yeah, like things are correct the way that they ought to be. Now, dikasune is the same word as sadiq, and it should be translated justice. Because righteousness is about God setting things right. Okay? So when you read, in there, all the translations do what they do, but in the New Testament, lots of times they translate it righteousness because that's how, that's how the earliest English translators used it. But that's a bad word because it means rule following in our world. When you talk about personal righteousness, we're talking about like staying away from sin. But that's not the kind of righteousness that they're talking about. The type of righteousness that they're talking about is seeking of justice in this world, that things would be set right in our relationships with one another, with God, and with creation. This is, where we, this is where we derive our ideas of justice and mercy, but we've misunderstood it so much. It's not about vengeance. It's not about punishment. It's not about the correct application of the law or adherence to the policy of this government. It's about setting things right to see things the way that they were meant to be. Or, if they can't be set right, to try to compensate the aggrieved party so that they will be made whole in some ways. Top. Whew. Me to, here we go. All right. That's something that we can all pursue in our broken world. Justice. Now, most things that are wrong... Most things that are unjust in our world will not rise to the occasion of needing a brave police officer to show up and to investigate. There's just constant work of injustice around us all the time. And most of these things are small, but they affect us every day. We have small slights. Someone says something rude to us. Gossip, anger, malice, greed. See that all over the place. All of that is injustice. It's us having a wrong relationship with one another and with God. When you see bad drivers on the road endangering your lives, you, your sense of justice probably goes up pretty high when someone almost kills you on the freeway, right? Like you're just like, oh my gosh. Or let's say you live on Mountain View Drive and someone's speeding by at 35 miles an hour and you're, you're going to go, why are these people, they don't care about my kids, they're going to kill my kids by speeding along my street. When someone tells lies about us, when our stuff is broken by accident or it's destroyed on purpose, when our relationships are broken, when our trust is broken, some poor people are penalized for being poor in our world. It's more expensive to be poor than rich in our world, which is a crazy thing. We see rich people take advantage of their position to gain more power and more wealth because that's the way the world is set up. We see rich people bully poor people by threatening expensive litigation. This is a hallmark of our legal system. It's expensive to pursue justice, so we don't pursue justice. When we're disrespected by others, when political appointees give preference to their donors ahead of the weak and the vulnerable. Have you guys ever seen that? I'm sure you haven't. When real estate developers can get meetings with city leaders while those struggling with homelessness have no voice. When pastors get deference, and their accusers are slandered in the church. 
when prosecutors pick and choose what they will pursue based on the news implications that it has. I, I don't know about you, but even thinking about these kinds of injustice just get me boiling. Now, I'm an, I'm an Enneagram 7 with an 8 wing, and so I have this, like there's this little fire going inside of me, and you just got to talk about injustice, and I'm just like, you know, that's just the way I was built. But I, I just feel it when, I, when I'm even talking about this. N.T. Wright says this when he talks about the, our ache for justice. He says, you fall off your bicycle and break your leg. You go to the hospital and they fix it. You stagger around on crutches for a while. And then ra- rather gingerly, you start to walk normally again. There is a, such a thing as putting something to rights as in fixing it, as in getting it back on track. You can fix a broken leg, a broken toy, a broken television. So why can't we fix injustice? It isn't for lack of trying, and yet in spite of failures to fix injustice, we keep dreaming that all broken things will, let's see, where'd that go? Oh yeah, will be set right. Right contends Christians believe that it, this is so because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echoes of a voice which calls us to live with a dream for justice. And followers of Christ believe that in Jesus, that voice became human and did ha- what had to be done to bring it about. This is why we're drawn to the story of Jesus, is because there's hope inside of us that God is setting things to rights, that the kingdom of God comes with it, this promise that God is at work. And what we see in our little community is that there's hope for restoration of relationships. There's hope for things being set right because we see it in fits and starts in our lives. So how do we fight against a world awash in preference for the wealth and the pow- wealthy and powerful? How do we avoid the traps of falling into the lie that it's not our work and it's not our business? When you see broken things in the world, do you have that little lever in the back of your head that says, like it's, it's like a tripwire? You feel so overwhelmed by injustice that you just shut that little part of your brain off? I can't deal with the pain that I see in the world, so I've got to stop thinking about it. Some of you probably want to try to fight everything. And some of you want to fight nothing. (laughs) And uh, we have to kind of ask, what does it look like for us as Christians to pursue justice? What What does it mean that God wants justice and his people will pursue justice? How do we be a people of justice? All right, buckle your seatbelts. We've got some hard, important stuff today, just like last week. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we're going to start with a promise because it's good news. It says this, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. This is one of those times where most translations translate it wrong and they put righteousness, but it's justice. Bless, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. It may not be in the way we desire, but God wants to satisfy this desire inside of us for justice. Let's jump in. Who is justice for? Everybody. When God sets things to right, it's meant to make everybody set right. That means that those who are powerful and wealthy will lose their ability to use their power and wealth to gain more from those who don't have it. That's justice because it helps those people. It takes away all the temptation of power and wealth. We talk about this quite often, but wealth itself is not an evil, but As soon as it's attached to a human, it destroys us. And so what God's going to do is he's going to take away our power and our wealth so that things are set right. Because we can't handle it. It's meant to be his stuff that is stewarded for all creation. It's not going to happen in this world. We're not socialists or communists around here. We don't believe in in an economic system that is completely flat. But we do see that this is the direction that God is heading with his kingdom is that all the hills will be made flat again. Justice is for everybody. But I'm going to tell you this. Those who are powerful and rich, they don't need us to get them justice. You know why? Because the rich and powerful get justice for themselves. They have access. They have money. They have voice. And so when we're talking about justice, one of the things that we're talking about is we have a preference for the poor the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the prisoner, because they are classes of people who have no real protections for justice. So we're going to look where there's the most injustice, those who have the least ability to speak for themselves, and we're going to jump in alongside of them because that's what Jesus tells us to do. 
in our world, just let's get real, the only way you get justice in our world is through connection and privilege. This is the only way that our justice system really works. Even when our police officers are doing a great job at showing up and providing the beginnings of justice, every single state prosecutor has to make a decision about what they're going to prosecute and how they're going to prosecute it. And so, we have to ask, how can we take our connection, our privilege, and our wealth and leverage it to help other people who don't have access to get justice? Uh, unfortunately, I, I have more interactions with the law enforcement system than I would prefer. <laughs> um, but when I've had a couple of problems, you know what I do? I've, I've got a couple of friends who are judges in Ada County and Canyon County. And when I have a question about procedure, I call them. You know what? They call me back and they tell me what to do because I have friends. So the work that we do is we leverage our connection to help others get justice. I had a domestic violence case here locally that I was helping with, and I called a couple of friends who are prosecutors and asked them, how do we pursue justice for this woman? And you know what? They took my call because of who I am, because of my position, because of our relationship, and I got to leverage that for somebody else. That's what it looks like to pursue justice. Um, that same domestic violence case, I called a friend who was a police officer. I had done his wedding, and he helped me to understand the background of the domestic violence disputes that this couple had had. And when the, when the husband was taken to prison for federal drug trafficking charges, he was prosecuted because they knew that this guy had been doing these things because we had had these conversations. That's how you pursue justice. Um, a couple weeks ago, I'm, I'm working on an affordable housing development and because I have a friend, I called and got an appointment with the mayor's office who's in charge of housing and asked them to change our zoning laws to help me do what I needed to do to, find, to create affordable housing. Now, poor people and homeless people don't have access to the ability to create housing or to have a voice in our local government that's going to help them get what they need. So we need to take our voice and use it for others. Um, in our world, elderly widows, they have no time and they have no money and they rarely have protections, they rarely have connections to protect them in our world. And often, they're the most vulnerable people in our neighborhoods who are being taken advantage of by scammers and they have someone stopping by their door to talk to them about solar panels every other day. <laughs> um, and they, they have so little resource that when things go badly, their lives devolve, and oftentimes they die before anybody even sees the injustice happening to them. Orphans, they're a ward of the state. Um, whether they're orphaned by drugs or orphaned by death, these orphans are literally under the care of the state, and so you know how much interest the state has in keeping themselves accountable to care for those children? None. Now, now I, I think that we have wonderful social workers who care deeply about those kids, but the system itself does not pursue justice for those children. So we have to, as the church, be the ones who are the voice for them. Orphans have no tribe. Now, if you look at the ancient world, um, justice was, was always ad hoc. Basically, before the 19th century, there were no professional police departments in the world before the 19th century. This is a, basically a brand new invention in the history of the world. And so all justice was ad hoc. It was pursued as a negotiation between one tribe and another, between one family and another, between one individual and another, and oftentimes it would be in front of a magistrate or a leader in a local community. It's still that way because it's only by our connections of family and tribe that we're cared for by the justice system. And orphans have no tribe to pursue justice for them. And so God's people are their people. Immigrants, they have very tentative status in our country. And they're very, very unlikely to avail themselves of any protections because they're afraid of the authorities. They're afraid that if they ask for justice from theft or from violence, that they will be kicked out of our country. 
And so immigrants themselves are unprotected by our justice system because they cannot, they, they don't feel safe enough to avail themselves of it. And so we have to be the people who, who are their voice in the world. Whether their status is legal or not, which is another modern invention, there was no illegal immigration before the 19th century, um, immigrants need protection from people who can have a voice for them. And the last group is prisoners. Now this seems like a people that we can, that in the, in the past we've thought about, they're just throwaway people. They're people who don't deserve any care because of what they've done in their past. Now I know you know that's untrue, because you have a past and you have things that you've done and the worst moments of your life do not define who you are. But prisoners themselves, just like orphans, they're wards of the state and may be the most vulnerable population on the planet. They have no real rights because they're hidden away from us. And so prisoners, like orphans, need the church to be the voice for them. This is the people that God has called us to pursue justice for. I'm going to skip some stuff. You're welcome. (laughs) What is justice? Who's it for? How important is justice? Luke chapter 11 verse 42 says, What sorrow awaits you Pharisees for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens? I just love that idea. Like a guy's like, okay. One time for you, nine times for me. <laughs> one basil for you, nine basils for me. You know, I, just, I just love the idea of a guy doing this thing. Um, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do you neglect the more important things? Boy, does this feel like a verse for our age. If it were written today, it would be like this. Sorrow awaits for you evangelicals, for you were, you were careful to speak against sexual permissiveness in your age. You were careful to protect your right to gather to worship, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should do those things, yes, but do not neglect the most important things. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to to give any examples, like any examples I give are just, they're just a shot in the dark to try to help you understand what I'm talking about. Um, But we're told what to care about by powerful forces in the world. The media and there are groups of people who have an agenda that they're trying to force us to think about and they keep our heads in certain places. That's why we care about things like sexual politics, That's why we care about things like places to worship because powerful forces in the Christian world are telling you these are the things, these are the issues in front of us. But we have to see the whole picture and ask what is justice in our world? How can things be set right? And who needs it the most? 80% of the kids in our foster system are going to end up in prison because they have no place to go once they're 18 years old. 20 to 25% of our kids are going to be sexually or physically abused. We have 4,000 homeless youth in our city right this moment. Pregnant women in our state get zero days of paid maternal leave after they have a baby. Our prison is full of people who get years and years in prison for nonviolent drug offenses, many of which are now legal in states just 40 minutes away. And over the last two and a half years, the prisoners in our prisons have been denied access to family and chaplains because of COVID and staffing and budget cuts. There's real injustice happening right in front of us in our community. Social security payments don't even begin to cover rent for our, for our senior citizens who don't have their own assets. I, I've often asked myself, this is, this is a quote from Vaclav Havel, you've, you've probably read some of this, this is what he says, this is, I've often asked myself why human beings have any rights at all I've always come to the conclusion that human rights, human freedoms, and human dignity have their deepest roots somewhere outside the perceptible world. These values are as powerful as they are because under certain circumstances, people accept them without compulsion and are willing to die for them. They make sense only in the perspective of the infinite and the eternal. While the state is a human creation, human beings 
of the creation of God. I want to light a little bit of fire in you that cares deeply about justice in our world. Because this is part of the reason why Redemption Hill exists is that our community would be a beacon of justice for a world that's gone wrong. That in our neighborhoods, in our families, and where we have influence and power and money and access, that we would leverage it for this world to see things set right. But it's not going to come because we pursue it. It's going to come because God is setting things to rights. We talk a lot about the kingdom of God, and almost all of the Old Testament stories of the kingdom of God start with justice. They start with, um, actually, we're going to read one from Matthew chapter 12 that's a, it's a throwback to one of these prophecies. Here's what it says. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will, he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering fl flame. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious, and his name will be the hope of all the world. We don't hope in human justice. We don't hope in our own understanding. We don't hope in our own strength to make justice happen. God is breaking into this world with justice as he transforms our lives to be the ones who pursue justice. Your life is the beginning of that transformation in our world. And the name of Jesus is the one we put our hope in because it's his spirit that's going to transform us from the inside out. Um, in Amos chapter 5, it says, well, this is one of my favorite verses, it says, instead of these things, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. The people of God were meant to be this counterexample, a kingdom of righteous living, i.e. those who pursue justice. We see it show up in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I have cheated on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. You see that throwback to, to Genesis 19, 18? He is a true son of Abraham because he pursued economic justice. He pursued justice by disadvantaging himself as a wealthy tax collector and saying, not only am I going to pay back the taxes I stole, but I'm going to pay back four times as much because that's the only way to make it right. Even in our church in John chapter 2, there will be justice. And it says in verse 14, in the temple area, he, Jesus saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. And Jesus made a whip out of some ropes. And he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattering the money changers' coins all over the floor, turning over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, a lot of churches need this sort of a disruption, this sort of pursuit of justice. Where instead of enriching ourselves and caring for ourselves with most of our money, God wants to upend that, to break down all of, all of the ways that the church has been this the church is a conservative force in the world in that it's always conserving the status quo because the church wants stability. But the church has to be this counterexample of justice in the world. We're at disadvantage to ourselves. We pursue the way of God. So how is that going to look around, uh, among us? Well, I... Let's see, what time is it? I didn't start my clock. All right, we got time. We're fine, right? All right. Uh, Acts chapter 6, you guys know the story. There's rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers are complaining that the, the Hebrew-speaking believers, their widows are being cared for, and the Greek speakers aren't because they don't know how to speak up for themselves. It's like literally a language issue. And so the 12 call a meeting of the believers, and they say, we're going to put some people in, in charge of this I love the New Living T Translation. It said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. That sounds great. Um, 
We, we should run a fruit program together, but just not the elders. And so give them this responsibility, then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. What I love about this story is that the Greek speakers were listening to their family. They were listening to those who were being unjustly uncared for. These widows who literally were destitute and had no food and didn't have what they needed. The, Greeks, the Greek-speaking believers were listening to them. So this is the first thing we need to do. We need to pay attention to injustice. Now, in our world, poverty is hidden. Weakness is hidden. We have nice places and dark places. We have rich places and poor places. And we tend to put them in places where they're not going to be prominent around us. And so a lot of your life, you probably don't engage with people who are weak and poor. And that's a problem, okay? Because you can't actually pursue justice if you don't know the people who need the justice. And so our work is to sidle up alongside those who are poor and need it. Our job is to, just like those in Acts chapter 6, speak up for those who are weak among us. If you have a voice and if you know something, your job is to courageously step up and say, there is injustice and we must do something about it. We must challenge those who are responsible to take responsibility. That's going to feel out of step with our nice culture that says don't rock the boat, but justice means we rock the boat of injustice and that we step into places that are uncomfortable because all it costs us is a little bit of uncomfortability and leveraging our status to get justice for somebody else. It's a small price to pay, and it's the way of the kingdom. And then when those who are not responsible don't take responsibility, we don't throw up our hands and walk away and say, I tried. We solve problems. Just like in Acts chapter 6, we step in and say, okay, you over here, you're responsible. We're going to give you what you need, and we're going to help you do it. We solve problems. This is how we're going to talk about justice. This is, this is our statement on, on biblical justice. Do we have it up there? Boom, there we go. We will live for the biblical concept of justice. We'll take a prophetic stand against all kinds of evil, not only spiritual, but also societal. All sin and injustice is the enemy of the church and the kingdom of God. The search for the kingdom of God is also a search for justice. They're the same longing. And in the kingdom, we find ultimate justice. And biblical justice is more than just punishment for wrongdoing and oppression. It's also the restoration of wholeness, equality, and peace between people and with God. Our value of justice is a call to seek the welfare of every person in our city and in the world that we can influence. It is to hope and to work for the kingdom of God to come to bear on the place where we are. And for that reason, our value of justice will mean action in the places where we have power, as well as the pursuit of justice and the proclamation of the kingdom wherever we have a voice. That's good news, right? This is who we're meant to be, is to be a beacon of hope in a world filled with injustice. Now, that's not slacktivism. It's not just writing a nice Facebook post when you see an injustice in the world. That's great and all. You can write a Facebook post, but it actually isn't going to do anything. It's going to make the people that you're calling out mad, and it's not going to make a difference in the people's lives that you actually care about. Okay? It's not about just saying something. It's an embodied message of my life poured out for others. It's not reactionary. We're not just going to go after the issue du jour, the thing that's in front of us, the thing that that guy made that documentary about, so we all have to care about it, okay? We're going to be consistent in our work towards justice in the small and the big things around us. It means that we're not going to be easily riled by the pundits. We're going to stay focused on the real issues. We're not going to partner with the systems of this world to overcome the systems of this world. We're not going to become partisan hacks joining in with the powerful structures of our day. We're going to be a prophetic voice from the outside speaking in. And we're not going to leverage our voice to protect the connected and the powerful. We all like to protect the connected and the powerful because we imagine, we see ourselves in them. Do you ever think that? Like, we always look up and say, I'm like them, the rich and the powerful. And so we think that we need to protect the rich and the powerful because someday I might need protection and I'm rich and powerful. That's what happens. But those aren't the people who need us to step in and find justice for them. 
And it's not just for the people of God, for ourselves and our families. It's for the weak among us. And this requires proximity to the poor, the prisoner, the orphan, the widow. Here's some practical ways to do that. There's this really cool program in our justice system called the Guardian Ad Litem Program. And what it means is that there are people who have no background in law, but they're set as guardians for the child in helping them pursue what is good for them in the justice system when they're orphans or in the foster system. It's just an advocate who walks with them. You get training. They always need people. And it's a really beautiful way that you can care for one individual kid, help them through it. Chaplaincy is a way that our world has set aside spiritual spaces in some of the most, um, in some of the most vulnerable places, like prison. Chaplaincy in prison is us saying, I'm going to go be God's person in helping them pursue Jesus and be a voice alongside of them in that space. That's the only way you're going to get access to care for prisoners. So if you want to, talk to me and I'll, I'll get you connected because it's an easy way for us to have proximity to those whose lives have been broken by sin and by injustice. Um, we have chaplaincy in hospice. We have a few people in our community who do work in hospice because they're some of the most vulnerable people in our community. People who have no voice and oftentimes their families are not even engaged in their care. And so as a chaplain, you get to be a voice for them. Um, and in our, in our hospitals as well. Um, Oftentimes, the, the chaplains are called in the most important moments to be those voices. We, we have partnerships um, where we can get into some intimacy and closeness with those who are poor. Um, community Ministries is a food pantry that feeds, now it's almost 400 families right here in our neighborhood. And they need volunteers all the time. You can go as often or as little as you want, um, but you're going to meet people who are struggling who live in our neighborhoods. It's a way to rub shoulders with people who are impoverished in our community. Um, we're also working with the syndicate to create what we're calling our homeless microchurch. Um, not in that the microchurch doesn't have a home, but it's a microchurch for and among and alongside the homeless in our community. And they're going to be meeting down probably at one of the day centers down um, in the River District downtown. And you can go every couple of weeks and be in proximity alongside and worshiping with people who are homeless currently who aren't going to be able to get to West Bench to join us in worship on Sundays. We can't solve every problem, but we can focus on the ones that are in front of us. So we're going to, we're going to focus on local instead of national problems. Um, we like national problems because they don't demand anything of us. We can just yell from a distance. But problems that are close up, we have to step in. Um, and as, as if Ike were in here, he would love this, but... Just like Uncle Ben says to Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. You have great power. You have wealth and access and voice that maybe you don't leverage all the time for the injustice around you. But with that great power and great wealth and great connection and great voice comes great responsibility to be a voice for injustice in our world. And like Peter in Queens or Miles Morales in Brooklyn, we are the friendly neighborhood Jesus followers who have been called to these neighborhoods and these places. <laughs> Daredevil in Hell's Kitchen, however you want to talk about it. Someone else is responsible for the stuff that's in front of you. That's you. That's what you're called to. It requires us to have courage, to be truth tellers, to sacrifice our position of influence and spend it for justice, and disadvantaging ourselves so that others can have what they need. This is what it means to step at the, to the table and to join in communion with God is to say, I'm pursuing the way of the kingdom, which is the way of justice. I'm gonna invite the band to come forward. Um, this morning, it's, it feels, communion has this very particular, um, like, it's something we do, and it's remembering Jesus' death on the cross. But what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross and his blood was shed and his body was broken was he was setting things to rights. His death was the thing that was going to make it possible for us to be in intimate relationship with the Father. His blood shed was so that your blood didn't have to be shed. 
his body broken and his bloodshed was the only way for the spirit to enter the world and for us to enter into the age of God's kingdom where he was working to set things right. And so when we come to the table each week and we receive the elements, this is a chance for us to remember that we are entering into his story of setting things right. From the beginning of history to end, that's the work that he's doing. So I'm going to pray. And during this song, come forward, receive the elements. Maybe serve one another as you come. And start asking God, what's the next step for us to pursue justice as a community? Lord Jesus, thank you for your, it wasn't just a prophetic voice, but it was your prophetic life lived out in front of us. Where you spoke truthfully, with courage, you challenged the status quo. Jesus, I'm sure you didn't feel real comfortable throwing over those tables in the temple. And I'm sure it was difficult to step in in front of Pilate and challenge the injustice that was happening to you. And I'm certain it was difficult to sit in quiet submission under the Sanhedrin as they heaped lies at you. But it was only through your prophetic witness in our world that we're able to enter in and experience forgiveness to receive your Holy Spirit and to partner with you in reconciling all creation to yourself. May we be a people who love justice and pursue it. Not frantically in our own power, but spirit-filled day in, day out, looking and reaching and connecting and seeing opportunity to leverage the things that you've entrusted to us. To see your kingdom come in small ways, now and not yet, and more fully in the kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.